Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. I'm your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. Thank you so much for listening. Every other week, I interview a chef, a pastry chef or a bartender, so you can discover their secret behind the scenes. What are their creative process? Where is their inspiration coming from? And who are the chefs and the bartenders that they are looking up to? Today is episode number one, and you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. My guest is Jesse Vida from Blacktail in New York City. Jesse is sharing with us the inspiration behind the menu at Blacktail, focusing on Prohibition-era Cuba and the path that led him from being a barback to a technical bartender and finally today launching his third menu at Blacktail. Stay with us to discover at the end his special ingredient that find a way in his cocktail creations. Hey, hi, Jesse. Great to have you on Flavor Unknown. Hey, Emmanuel. Glad to be on the show. So how would you describe your job in 10 words? I would describe my job as intense, uh, rewarding, creative, fast, mentorship, educational, spiritual, team, family, and friends. So can you tell me more about uh, the word uh, rewarding? So much work goes into uh, every detail of what I do and what we do at, at, at our bar, from educating the staff you know, to putting in the details of the drink, you know, the, the process of food and everything that goes into it. And it's definitely very rewarding at times to see everything running at full swing and the place is just jam-packed and busy and every aspect is really hitting and every guest is truly enjoying the experience and you're just seeing all the staff and some of them may have came in, you know, very green and didn't really know a lot. And then they're confident and really, and really executing the service the way we want to. It's kind of those moments of small victory that, that feel very rewarding. There's a special um, example that you remember from uh, a great service that was done to um, some of your customers. You know, it's more just, feeling and a vibe and you just look around the room and everyone's laughing and joking and having a good time and the, the energy is high and the mood is right. You look around and the bartenders next to me are working with like solid technique and getting drinks out quick. You know, the barbacks running around, restocking everything going. The servers are tasting their drinks, running them. It's just like it's everything moving in the same direction at the same time. It's a beautiful thing. So, and why spiritual? Spiritual, because for me, this is a career of passion. And some people I've, I've heard in the past disagree with that word, but for me, that's just the only way I can describe it. Like, I really, I care deeply and I, I feel it, you know, in my heart and my soul, uh, the way that uh, hospitality you know, affects people and affects myself, you know, giving or receiving it. So definitely spirituality to it as well as through the creative process and spirits themselves and cocktails. So tell me about the story of Blacktail. The story of Blacktail 
is that the operating partners, Jack McGarry and Sean Muldoon, famously of the Dead Rabbit, had, Sean in particular, had the concept of Black Pill in his head many, many years ago, even before they thought of Dead Rabbit. But, you know, their approach is to find the space and then kind of connect the story through the space. Black Pill, where it's located, it, it just really made sense for the story, which Black Pill is named after the planes um, on the Highball Express that would fly drinkers and bon vivants from the United States and New York and the Hudson down to Cuba. And it would fly right over the building where we're located, Pier A, which is a building that was built in 1886. And so that was the concept we ran with and, and the story all connected. So it's all about um, having on the menu and as well in the decor what's supposed to be a bar, an American bar, let's say in Cuba during the prohibition time, right? Correct. Yeah. Or, you know, we like to call ourselves the American bar with the Cuban soul and the, the space and the ambiance and the story of the menu is all about, you know, 1910s, 1950s, 60s, um, Havana, Cuba and, you know, the, the influx and, influence of the American consumer, you know, coming out there and catering to that and uh, kind of recreating that story, but in an American, in a modern American cocktail bar. Okay, so we'll come back a bit later on, you know, the menu Blacktail, but I would like to go back in time a little bit. And can you get me through the story of what compelled you to be a bartender? Yeah, it's it's funny. I was just having a conversation with one of my colleagues the other day. You know, we do have people coming to Blacktail and to other cocktail bars that coming straight out of culinary school and they are studying to be bartenders, um, which is something that just doesn't wasn't really a thing when I first kind of fell into it. So uh, people of my generation and older, it was kind of an accident. You know, I I was in college and. I was just working kind of whatever jobs getting by um, as I was in school. And actually, my best friend um, back in San Francisco, where I'm from, kept bugging me to go and try to apply to be a bar back at this new restaurant that was opening. But I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't come from you know a foodie family or anything like that. Like I would like to you know party with my friends on the weekend like any college kid. But I had no idea of you know the difference between know, a burgundy glass and, you know, whatever, a Viognier glass of wine. I didn't know there were different shapes and, and different things like that. So long story short, he kept bugging me about it. And I was kind of sick of my job. I was working at the mall. And so I walked in for an interview and I was extremely out of my element. When I walked in for my scheduled interview, the uh, bar manager of this new bar that was opening, I guess it maybe double booked herself. She was in a conversation with another person. I kind of walked in. I was like, hi, here for the bar back interview. She's like, okay, cool. Um, So show up tomorrow at whatever, 3 p.m., wear a black shirt, and we're going to give you a trail. I was like, okay. And then I just kind of walked out a little bit confused as what happened because I didn't know what a trail was, <laughs> you know. Um, And I came back the next day, and they basically just threw me into service. I guess I never looked back from that sense and probably about... I was still in school and I would say about 
three to four months into bar backing, I realized I really enjoyed it. It was really something that came natural to me to just, you know, be like working a fast pace, high energy, sense of urgency, team environment. So I went and I got a couple books and those books were um, the Savoy Cocktail Book and Imbibe that just came out. This was about 2007, 2008 by David Wondrich. And I took both those books home and I started reading about the history of bartending and you know started playing with classic cocktails and trying to balance them and make it work and i kind of started moving up into bartender like within within the first eight months or so that i was bar backing and i knew at that point that this is what i wanted to do who did you meet along the way who had a strong influence on you and became mentors yeah i have had many people who have influenced me throughout my career. In my early stages in San Francisco, um, Gabriel Lowe was the first bartender who taught me how to bartend. He's been you know, running bars and doing things in San Francisco, cocktail scene for quite some time. He's also done some consulting in South America. There's a guy named James Lemieux that was kind of the first bartender I was ever bar backing with, and he kind of showed me the ropes on the classics. And then when I came to New York, I definitely was uh, mentored by some great uh, personalities out here as well. I worked at Dutch Kills uh, for a while. So Richie Bacato, who owns that bar, Fresh Kills, he owns a bar in LA. He used to work at Little Branch back 10 years ago when Milk and Honey and Little Branch were one of a small handful of cocktail bars in New York. Um, and then most more recently, Jack McGarry, the Dead Rabbit and Blacktail has, has definitely been a mentor for me. We work very closely together. So what did you learn from them? In all different things, you know? That's the thing about mentorship is I think a lot of people are always like looking for a mentor or people are looking for others to mentor. And I don't really feel like it works like that. Like very rarely will you have one single person have, uh, have this just one mentor relationship where they take them you know, through their entire journey of their career. For me, it was multiple mentors and different people taught me different things. James really taught me hospitality. Gabriel taught me first kind of round of, of how to be a technical bartender. And when I got to New York, um, work, working for Richie Bucato and Dutch Kills, that's where that all that stuff really came together. It was like technique with deep classic knowledge, with speed and building by the round. And then working at Dead Rabbit, when I started working there, that that's when Jack really showed me through his example of leadership, how to be a leader. And... Um, also cocktail creation, like how to really have a process and how to break down ingredients and how to layer cocktails. So, You mentioned uh, the word, uh, the expression technical bartender. So what, what does that mean for you? Uh, I will often use comparisons uh, when creating cocktails to maybe the way chef works in the kitchen and they are, they are different things, but there are a lot of parallels and like a classically trained cook. They have really good knife work. They have proper cutting techniques. They know how to work cleanly and efficiently. It's a, it's a similar thing with, with a bartender who's trained in that way and groomed that way. A bartender who's technically sound knows how to perfectly stir a martini and how to perfectly shake a daiquiri, um, how to work you know, with that efficiency and how to be clean, how to you know, be on top of all things at the same time. So what does it take to uh, move from uh, being uh, a bar back to um, a technical bartender? Well, it's, def it's definitely a journey. I mean, bar backing is a lot about humility and, and hard work and 
you know, you, you're really just grinding it out. You're the bartender is the star and you are there to assist them. And that is a great lesson because it really teaches you how to be on top of all the little details. And when a bar back is ready to go to bartender is when bartender never needs to ask for anything. anymore. When the bartender is about to ask for ice and the ice is already there. Uh, when the bartender breaks a glass and before he can say anything, the bar back's already you know, helping to clean it up, uh, so on and so forth. That's when they're ready to move the bartender. And, and that's a long transition, you know, because you have to teach them the, the technical skills, but a huge part of being a great bartender is your ability to control the guest experience, to individualize, to, gen- to make it more general, and then to just like cater and control the crowd. I mean, there's, there's so many aspects of it. You're a bit of a, a master of ceremony back there. Now I would like us to talk about innovation. Can you describe to me what is your innovation process? Yes, for sure. Of course, I have deadlines and I need to get you know menus done in time for seasonal things like that. But I always kind of res- I respect my own creative space. So if I wake up one day and I'm really not feeling super creative, I'm not going to go and force myself to make drinks. Um, luckily for me, I do have more creative energy uh, more often than not. Um, so when I'm ready and I'm in that headspace, basically I, I, I break it down by flavor inspiration or spirit inspiration. And those things can go hand in hand, but you know, in a, in a simple breakdown of it, let's say I'm excited about heirloom fruit or some you know unique uh, indigenous varietal of an herb. I will take that one herb or fruit, and I will think about what style of cocktail I think it's going to work in best. If it's going to be something you know stirred and herbaceous like a martini, or stirred and rich like a Manhattan, if I want to do something heart bright, refreshing, like a daiquiri or a gimlet, a Collins or something like that, then once I have that general idea, I will try it in a very basic application. Let's say I want to do it in a gimlet. So I take this herb and I shake it fresh with um, sugar, lime juice, and gin. And once I know those components all work together, I'll start moving on to the next thing. And this is where, this is where the understanding of flavors and then referencing a lot of flavor kind of books and stuff like the flavor bible you know being a huge example of that i actually use more cookbooks than i use cocktail books creating drinks because i'm more looking to find flavors that work together and the best part of that is is when i find something that i just never would have thought actually worked then you put it in that application and it it really just plugs in something like lime is a flavor pairing with mint for us that doesn't just mean lime juice it doesn't mean just mean lime zest. It could also mean, you know, a liqueur that has, you know, a lime forward flavor, a bitter that has a lime forward flavor. Is there a specific culinary book that you use for inspiration? For me, it's more like flavor pairing type books than necessarily like a traditional cookbook. And I have a copy of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible that I've had for about four years since all beat up and dinged up sitting by the bar. And I've used that book. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. In a previous interview, you said, I quote, that the bartender's craft is a part creativity, a part performance, and a part showmanship. Can you explain what you meant by it? And tell me how it influenced the creation of the current Blacktail menu. Yeah, so, I mean, the... Part craft is, is obviously 
crafting the cocktails, you know, to order for the guests in front of you. Um, the showmanship is the way in which you work. This kind of goes back to your technique, you know, being technically sound isn't only, um, you know, executing on a level where things are coming out the way they're supposed to. It's also, there should be a little bit of a flow and a poetry to the way that you move that is still extremely functional. And the showmanship is you are entertaining guests. You know, you're, you're hosting guests, cracking jokes, you're finding relatable topics, you're handing a tin over to let somebody shake, to let them feel like a part of what's happening. So I think those, those three aspects are definitely very relevant for bartenders. And moving on to the second question about you know, how I influence the creativity at Black Hill. You know, I'm, as the bar manager there, I am in charge of the creative process of the menu. And for me, that that's a very collaborative process. So basically, I put together the formula of what we're looking for in the menu in a very general way. And myself and the bartenders will work on drinks for you know weeks or months at a time. And you know, we'll fill all the holes. And then I'll help them balance drinks. They'll give their input on my cocktails and everyone else's cocktails. And once it's all kind of where it needs to be, I put it all together. And, and then, and then of course, there's the administrative side of, you know, getting it all printed and edited and uh, making sure the descriptions are correct. Because Blacktail is focused on the Prohibition era Cuba from 1910 to 1960, does it somehow limit you in your creativity? Well, definitely the, the creative uh, focus to a certain extent is based on a kind of an era and a time and there is a style or styles of cocktails that are you know based around that Caribbean influence of the 1910s to 1950s. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't say that limits us in any way because there's total freedom to you know bring a lot of modern technique or you know new and unique flavors and kind of plug them into what is generally a black tail cocktail. And you, you will see a lot of our drinks um, we have tons of new drinks on our menu that were just created at Blacktail, and then we have a lot of drinks that are uh, modern adaptations of classics, like bringing classic Cuban cocktails to the modern palate, you know, like the way we do our rum and cola, or Mary Pickford, or Nacional, or El Presidente. These are all very classic Cuban cocktails, but we have you know, put some, some modern techniques and modern flavors. You just mentioned a cocktail called the Nacional. Can you describe the drink for us? And then I'm curious about the creative process behind it. Yeah, for the Nacional, I mean, that cocktail is one that's actually very close to my heart because it was the first drink that ever created or finalized for our first menu, you know, well before the bar opened. Um, and it is definitely one of the quintessential Cuban classics. It's named after the Hotel Nacional in Havana, Cuba, a hotel that has uh, tons of history out there. So many interesting things have happened there. Basically, the a classic nacional is is a rum, uh, a daiquiri with apricot, so lime juice, you know, apricot liqueur, white rum or white and aged rum shaken. And the way that we do our modern adaptation is it has it's true to those ingredients. It has lime juice instead of an apricot liqueur. It's an apricot eau de vie, so it's more of a pure expression of the flavor, and it doesn't really bring much of a sweetness. It's more dry. We added some pineapple layered in. A yuzu syrup as well as a gentian so it'll give that kind of like floral bitterness on the finish but it's kind of rich and tropical in the middle and then it has a 
47% rum, white rum. So it's a really great balanced drink and layered. Uh, there's also a little bit of banana syrup in there too. thing that I think is really cool about the Nacional, I've had people say this to me before, is you taste every ingredient that's in it. Like everything is present, but it's all very together. Nothing is dominant and it's just it's awfully balanced. So you talk about the importance of collaboration. Describe a little bit the process. How do you work with uh, your team in order to, let's say, give them the path that they need to focus on this era of 1910 and 1950-1960 and bringing their own creativity? So how do they approach the, the research? I mean, the research was, was definitely more, I would say, much more of a focus of the first book. And the first menu was mostly my drinks, as well as Jack McGarry and then Jillian Vos, who's who's my counterpart at, at Rabbit. She's the bar manager there. You know, I kind of I led the the creation of that menu, and they helped out because we didn't have a staff to be collaborative with at that point. The bar wasn't open, um, but since then, I would say it's more just been understanding what is a black soap cocktail and like what you know, what have guests come to love and expect when they come to our bar, and then. The biggest focus is hitting on everyone's palate. So, you know, we have a menu with 44 cocktails in it, and then we do a seasonal menu with another eight drinks. With that many cocktails, there should be a cocktail for everybody. I think a lot of that is the focus. So it does leave a lot of room for creativity, but we always do want to have at least, you know, 10 of those drinks be focused around classic Caribbean style cocktails and so some of our drinks have you know crossed over, like the Nastianal has always been on our on all of our menus. We're about to launch our third book actually. There's there's a lot of open area for, for the bar staff to get creative. It just needs to fit, you know, our our style. So let's go a little bit behind the scene now. Uh, what is the one piece of equipment behind the bar that you can't live without and why? You know, I would say probably be our sous vide. It's been used in kitchens forever, but we use it to do so many of our infusions. Extremely important because we do have like a lot of fruit produce infusions, and the sous vide just really makes it work better than anything any other technique we've tried. Can you give me an example of an infusion that you are making with the sous vide? One of the things that's also kind of a staple of our menus is we do flavored daiquiris. We do strawberry, a banana, a pineapple, a coconut. What we do with each of those individually is we do a 24-hour low-temperature cook in a sous vide with those spirits individually. So we have a, a strawberry-infused spirit, and we also do a cook with the syrup. So we'll have a strawberry syrup, and we have a pineapple syrup, and we have a banana syrup, and it really creates this amazing consistency. There's inconsistency when you're muddling fruit. You know, some things might be out of season, or one thing might be bigger or smaller than the other. The way we do our fruit infusions is just 100% consistent all the time. They always, the flavor always pops and they always taste great. Going from executing someone else's menu, creating or directing a beverage program makes a big difference. So, what are the most important tips that you can share for those considering this career move? Running a bar and managing a bar is definitely a whole different set of challenges than simply the creative process. That's kind of the fun part and the easy part, to be honest. You know, I focus on being a manager. Don't focus on being a star. Focus on the staff. Make sure the staff has all the tools they need to succeed. Get feedback. Make sure people working 
at your place of work are heard. You know, lead by example when you're working. Don't just tell people what to do. You need to do those things yourself. I guess really what, what I'm getting at in a nutshell is it's all about people who are working for you and working under you. And I guess communication is important too. Yes, I mean, you know, communication is basically number one, two, and three, I think, in any circumstance, whether it's business or personal, family, whatever, like communication is always huge. So I just try to keep a very open communication with everyone. And that means, you know, actually checking in on people and making sure they're all good, asking them, you know, if they think any systems can be better, um, having people come with solutions, not, not simply just problems. We have so many mediums of communication, from email to text to meetings. You are talking about the importance of communication in personal life. And I was reading recently that your girlfriend was based in Calgary. So I guess um, you know the importance of communication in distant relationship. Yes, I can gladly say that it was a long-distance relationship, but she is in New York now. We live together, but we did we did like date long distance, and yeah, I mean it's you know that dating long distance is actually a very beautiful thing. I mean it does get old after a while, and you you want to take the next step, but it really forces you to slow everything down and to be constantly communicative. I mean you know when when we were dating long distance for that year, or so she was in Cal- still in Calgary, we talked on the phone literally every night. You know, and because it's the only way you can be in communication and be accountable, and it really makes you take the emotional and mental step over the physical. That's great. And she is in the business as well, right? She is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she she was crushing it um, back in her hometown in Calgary. She came out here, and she's actually working at the Dead Rabbit. She's been doing very very well for herself. Uh, she's actually well. We I'm going with her. Is off. We're off to London uh, in a month. And she's competing for the North American finals for Bombay Sapphires, most imaginative bartender. So doing doing pretty well, representing New York, actually. Wow, this is really something special. She must be excited about it. Now, Jesse, I would like that we talk a little bit about the ingredients that go into a cocktail. What ingredient is irreplaceable to you and why? For me, absinthe got to have it. I need it for so many cocktails. It works in so many things. Actually, the way I discovered this, aside from just using it in drinks, is when I was looking up flavor pairing for a myriad of different ingredients, the thing that kept popping up was fennel. Fennel, fennel, fennel. It works with so many dishes. It works with so many different types of foods and spirits. And absinthe is you know, very, very anisette tasting, and it has that kind of fennel flavor going on. So I've found that it works more often than not. So what unique and unfamiliar ingredients are finding the way into your menu recently? I actually took the entire bar staff to a couple of spice shops when we first started working on our third edition menu. And yeah, we have all kinds of <laughs> random weird spices and stuff on this menu, like a, a Tasmanian peppercorn we have many varietals of, of Szechuan. There's definitely some interesting Indian flavors to be on this on this new menu. I don't want to look, let too many secrets out. You know, people got to come in and try it. I mean, absence was really interesting um, and fascinating that you are using it 
so often in cocktails. So what characteristic does it bring uh, beside the anise of this profile um, that you are using it so often? It really connects a lot of high notes. So it makes you know citrus really pop very bright. If you have any you know herbs or any kind of herbaceous spirits, it really brings everything out and it makes it you know kind of hit on the tip of the tongue. So it's really great um, for balancing drinks. It works. Uh, you know, I use it more in the format of like bitters, like it'll just be a dash or two, such a potent flavor profile. And and yeah, I find oftentimes you know, doing like Manhattan old fashioned variations, like absinthe really helps kind of bring everything together, you know. So do you think it is um like the trend of the moment? It's been around so long at this point that I don't I can't imagine that it's uh, going anywhere soon. Absinthe is a very classic cocktail ingredient and it was kind of been rediscovered as of late. Let's focus on one famous cocktail type now, the old-fashioned. How can an amateur bartender at home prepare a unique and new old-fashioned? Like, How can he add an unfamiliar twist to it? What would you suggest? Well, there you go. The absinthe is always uh, one you can reach for, but um, as far as home bartending putting something like Campari, just like a bar spoon of Campari in your old-fashioned will give it a nice orange bitterness going on in there. A lot of Amaro as well. Those like a, it's like a Amari, Amaro, they're, they're like a type of Italian, BGST, usually a little bit lower in alcohol. They range anywhere from bittersweet to extremely bitter, more sweet. Um, Amaro Chicharo is, is amazing in old-fashioned. Again, just a small bit, quarter ounce or, or a bar spoon. Really brings like nice, like bitter chocolate and orange flavors. I'm going to try that this weekend. An old fashioned with a spoon of Campari and a dash of chocolate bitter. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, you should. It's delicious. What do you see being the trend uh, in cocktail in 2019? Well, I guess uh, the the CBD is is huge these days. Everyone's putting that in in food and drinks. So we'll see how that gets regulated. Uh, the low ABV trend has, has definitely been a thing. A lot of sherry, a lot of Aperol spritz-esque cocktails. And then rum is, is on the rise. Talking about CBD, how would you pair it in cocktail with other ingredients? I haven't played with it too much, but uh, you know, I would imagine anything going to be, you know, anything that would work with things like mint or basil or anything that's kind of like intensely herbaceous in that way. Now, Jesse, it's time for the rapid-fire question of the podcast. Where do you go for a crafted cocktail in New York City where you are not working behind a bar? And, of course, that rabbit does it count as an answer? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't, yeah, no shameless plugs. Don't worry, I'll keep like the better rabbit off. Some of my favorite cocktail bars in New York right now are Nomad, Attaboy, Death & Company, all, all great bars. Those are, those are kind of my like solid top tier go-tos for New York style cocktail bars. But man, there's so many good ones these days. Brooklyn probably has a couple good ones like Fresh Kills. So are you gin or bourbon? Gin. Love bourbon, but I, I go gin if I have to pick one. Which celebrity would you like to create a cocktail for? Ooh. Um, which celebrity would I like to create a cocktail for? I guess Ryan Reynolds would be would be pretty fun. The actors are coming to mind. What would you serve him? Well, probably in aviation, because I've read he's into that. 
what is the strangest cocktail you've ever tasted? Hmm. Strangest cocktail. I've definitely tasted some weird drinks. I know like a dandelion in London, I had a, uh, had a concrete Sazerac. It was like somehow infused concrete. <laughs> I don't know exactly how they did it, but that was an interesting one. I would like now to give you a little bit of time to talk about some of your up-and-coming projects. Um, up-and-coming projects, um, I'm going to be out in London a couple of times doing, um, doing some guest bartending things, um, as well as Berlin. And I recently did a consultation project, and I put together the bar program for Chef Jiyoung Park, who has Atto Boy in New York City. He just opened Atto Mix which is like a fine dining uh, course dinner downstairs and upstairs. There's a cocktail bar with, with bar bites. Really, really great spot. And yeah, aside from that, I guess Blacktail will be opening an outdoor space um, next spring. Very cool. So that's really exciting. And uh, can you tell us more about like the um, bar program at uh, Atomic? What's the profile of the drink? Yeah, so basically the, the idea of the, the park program at Atomix is it's the uh, celebration of Korean flavors, but then, you know, executed, of course, in like a more modern, modernly classic cocktail program. Um, the drinks are great. There's things like, you know, taro root infusions and angelica root infusions um, using flavors that are very, you know, familiar to the Korean palate, but Putting them in a very like classic style of cocktail using using soju, but not just using any of these things just because they are Korean, but really finding a way to make them delicious and very approachable, balanced cocktails. Hope we can get together another time and then we can discuss further about atomics. Thank you so much, Jesse, for your time. You definitely made us salivate about the drinks from Prohibition Era Cuba at Blacktail. And thank you again for sharing with us your creative process. Great. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Thank you for listening today. And if you have any comments, you are always more than welcome to. Just head to flavorsunknown.com and click on the contact page. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.